Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. <laughs> we managed to pee without getting assassinated, which is totally a way to plug Rochelle's podcast. Talking shit and spilling pee, where we talk about what comes out of our bodies figuratively and literally. So, I'm a fan of Diocletian for a lot of reasons, and we get into Diocletian now. And the beauty of Diocletian, I think he he does a lot of things that are kind of clever that you gotta respect, right? Like, so to get the job, there's, there's a guy who has a very legitimate claim to the imperial throne. Like, like mm. his claim is is like kind of familial, kind of supported by the Senate, kind of uh, uh, the army behind him. And there's Diocletian, and there's another guy. So another guy kills the more legitimate guy, according to Diocletian, as he kills the illegitimate guy. Oh God! So he like takes this guy before the army, and he's like, "This guy killed that guy that everybody loves. Stab! Look at that! I took care of it. Diocletian solved the problem. Let's go." And Diocletian is very good at doing things kind of like that, where he's like, oh, here's a problem, well, I figured out the solution, and now we're doing things that way. He, uh, he's the commander, he's not a good general, there's a lot of people who will point out he's, there is a, a, a way to brain and a kind of person who can see terrain and tactics and be like, this does that, put these men here, we win. Mm Mm-hmm. Diocletian, not his strong suit there. Diocletian's strong suit is going, hey, I need 170 people here. Here's how I can make them appear there. He's much more of a, he's a stronger manager than he is a general, right? So he's very good at assigning the tasks. Yeah, so basically he needed to to have like military counsel much more so than other. A little bit, yeah. And he's, he's. There's a lot of cool things about him. Uh, he, he's the son of a slave. Uh, not, we don't really know much about his childhood. He's from modern-day Croatia, but he comes from very meager means. And like I said, the middle class exists because of the soldiery, because so many people can get a job in the army. It used to be a job that people would get for like 10 years and then retire to go farm from. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who, from other nations, as Rome conquers them or as they gain a relationship with Rome, see a job in the army as a, as a path to success, right? And Diocletian came up in this culture that had been normalized by Valerian and Aurelian of competency to a certain degree rises to the top. There's a, there's a hierarchy and who, who becomes emperor kind of, the army keeps functioning under different people. And so kind of in Aurelian and Valerian's camp, to a certain degree, competency keeps rising. If you're good, you keep getting rewarded. Whereas in other places, if you're good, other branches or other divisions other under other generals, you might get killed for that because you're a threat. Mm, that makes sense. So he, like I said, he's not immediately after Aurelian, but what he's really good at is he's good at the combination of politics and army. So he might not be able to see the victory, but he knows my homeboy, my buddy Maximilius, Maximinius, is really good at that stuff. So I'll send Maximinius over here to do that. And my buddy Galerian is really good at fighting in this area, and he's got a lot of troop support. So I'll send him there, and I'll trust them to figure it out. And then I'll deal with some political stuff over here, making sure this king does that thing and whatnot. What Diocletian is really good at is 
giving away power to have more power. So one of the first things he does is his buddy Maximinius, he assigns as essentially emperor in the West. He says, hey, I'm, I'm first emperor. I'm Augustus. But also Augustus is my buddy Maximinius. He's just junior Augustus. And he's, okay. he's going to take care of the Western half of the empire. He's going to take care of Britons in revolt. Uh, there's some of the Gallic uh, tribes are thinking about they got to work together, so I need somebody to deal with that. In the East, Persia has, they, they've taken some territory, so we need to realign that. Egypt's in revolt. Somebody's got to be in charge there. The Eastern half of the empire makes the most money thanks to Egypt and the trade routes of, of the Eastern half, right? The Silk Road. Diocletian immediately is like the best way to keep power is to split it, and it also keeps a moving target, right? So if you want to become emperor, now you don't just have to kill me, you have to kill Maximinius, because I already said Maximinius is is emperor. He's like the vice principal. Exactly. And what they start to realize is, and the other thing is there's, there's certain shit that only the emperor can approve, especially because over the years... During the Pax Romana, the emperors gave themselves more and more power over, like, taxes, over what the army can do, over who can be citizens, who pays taxes in general, right? Like, if you're a citizen in the city of Rome, you don't have to pay taxes. What? And if you're, if you're a person in another province, you might have to pay double taxes if you're not of Roman descent or weird, weird what stuff like that. What the fuck? The first, and, and again, these things can only be changed when the emperor agrees to it, but the emperor is busy fighting another dude for the last 50 years, fighting another dude who says he's emperor too, so nothing's getting decided. So when you have two emperors, you get twice as much decided in the same amount of time. And in fact, it proves so effective that, that Diocletian starts this thing after the fact, historians call it, the Tetriarchy, which just means rule of four. Mm. Now, in the past, other people had shared emperorship. So like um, Augustus, after Julius Caesar... He shares it with Mark Anthony and this other guy for a while, but it's more of a... Wait, did that guy get married to J-Lo? Uh, yes. <laughs> Mark Anthony famously married to J-Lo and Cleopatra. They're not together anymore because J-Lo's back with Ben <coughs> Affleck. Hello! Uh, and much like Ben Affleck, uh, I got nothing. So, <laughs> the emperors in the past are more rivals with each other for power and less co-chairmen. And Diocletian is the first guy, in my opinion, to look at the Empire and realize, much like Augustus, it's a machine, and when I get into power, I'm not getting into power to be in power, I'm getting in power to manage an Empire, to be the boss of the Empire. And I think that's part of why he ends up retiring, and we'll, we'll, there's a lot of stuff he does before he retires, but I think when he gets into the job, he sees it as a natural promotion, because he, he starts off as a soldier, he gets put in charge of a cavalry union or unit <laughs> unit uh, and from there he gets made a general of the cavalry and then from there he gets promoted to emperor so it's one of those things where it's like it looks like a natural progression to him and he kind of is saying like no there's a natural progression look senior emperor junior emperor maximilian junior emperors uh constantius and galerius uh, and they'll, they'll be called caesars and this rule of four again allows even more administrative things to get done so suddenly, like, oh, cool, the emperor in the southeast quadrant is here. He can approve tax things. He can make sure the soldiers' requisitions are cool. He can agree to all of these things that are backlogged for the last 50 years of just administrative empire. And that's another one of, that's, that's actually kind of the cool thing about Diocletian, is he realizes, oh, I have a business I'm in charge of, and I need to have good people to do, I, I need people doing good jobs in order to have a good business. 
Mm-hmm. So he, he separates things and moves places. Sometimes he literally tells people, you no longer live here. You live in a new spot. You, you're, you're colonizing what? this spot, right? What? But what he ends up doing... Eminent domain? I didn't realize I was so old. Yeah. and he, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it's actually the start of peasantry. Because what happens mm. is you have to do your job. And you, with the money degraded, he starts taking taxes in kind. So he's like, cool, I know you can't provide me 50 gold. Now provide me seven cattle out of your cattle farm. That's a lot of cows. Like, yeah, one of the one of the things I listened to talk about this dude who's like a blacksmith who doesn't report to work to blacksmith. So like this official has him brought in to prove that he's not sick and that he's not healthy enough and is like bringing his equipment just in case he can so we'll have him get started right away. So it's this weird, it's a... Proto-communism, I don't want to throw that out there exactly, but it's a, but it's definitely peonism. You're tied to peasantry in that you're tied to the land, and you have a job, and you're required to give something to somebody above you. And that's really what Diocletian does, is he, he takes the army's model of hierarchical uh, status, but also competency being promoted, and applies it to as many things as he can. And he also, up until this point, the army has been the one collecting taxes they're in charge of the city so they're making administrative and judicial choices and he realizes oh every time you do that somebody has a chance to build up a power base and come after the person in charge so the army is going to be separate from the administrative body they'll just enforce the rules that the administrators make but the administrators are going to follow a similar hierarchy. The person in charge of a city is going to report to a person in charge of a county, report to a person in charge of a state. And that's kind of the first time that's set up like that, so hierarchical. and like Yeah, pretty intense like power centralization. Exactly. And nobody, before this, it's all been kind of like, cool, we'll do that, we need to do that, so we might as well. And he's the first person to be like, no, that's the system, and you can you can rise in it, and you can fall in it. But, like, you're governor. You're assigned a certain number of X, Y, and Z. And he, he also, there used to be uh, 45 provinces, roughly. Like, uh, calling them states isn't an accurate approximation. They're, like, also geographic regions. They might include more than one country. But he takes these 45 provinces and turns them into 100. Gerrymandering. Yeah, very much so. A, it's harder to build up a power base because now you need twice as many little regions uh, under your control to do it, but also you have to work through twice as many levels of admir- administrative bullshit to get it done. Ugh. And many of the modern offices that we know about today, like like he would, one of the appointments he made of a certain region that was like kind of militia official and also like administrative body was something called a ducks that eventually evolved into the word duke. Mm. And if I remember right, I may, I may be misquoting this dude, but there was also this thing where like the rank of major ended up getting transferred to this thing called major, which ends up getting made into mayor as like a... So many of the things he sets up, and in fact, he the diocese comes because Diocletian set up the diocese. The church, when it takes over uh, the Roman Empire a few generations down the line, looks at this administrative body and is like, holy crap, that's perfect. Let's just, let's just graph that onto what we do. So when he gets into when he gets into power, he has three things he has to deal with. He has to secure the borders, he has to fix inflation, and he has to fix secession. Part of how he fixes secession is he makes everything so hierarchical and static, right? So so you have to 
work your way up the ranks. And part of that is because, like I said, he he had it normalized for him coming up the ranks himself, mm-hmm. right? And then he normalizes it more because he's like, look, Maximinius is just below me. He's equal to me. And then there's two ranks below that with the Caesars. So you'll have to go through Caesars to get to Augustus's. Part of securing succession helps you secure the borders. Because once you once you establish that you're legitimate, there, there's a lot of political philosophy and blah, blah, blah. But one of the most important things to power is legitimacy and being able to save a lot of time by just saying, I can do this. That's really where a lot of might makes right politics comes from. Is like, look, I can hit you. It will save a lot of time if you do this instead of I hate you. And Diocletian is the first one to realize you can also oppress people with a system. You can put so many layers of BS that they have to do into place that it creates order. And order is kind of like peace. So there's a lot of there's a lot of artwork in this time that's like peace unto all of us. Everything's gonna be better because Diocletian is. Even though he grew up a slave, he's pretty well educated. All these guys are. In order to advance and rake in an officer, you have to know, you know, some of the politics of Greece. You have to know. You have some to be of the... pretty darn well rounded. Yeah, and so he knows his history, and he knows about the past, and he knows part of how Augustus did that was implementing organizations and creating like a hierarchy that people have to get through to get to. You. And all of that lets him do another thing that's sideways, which is he's also the first person to say. God did this. Like so, he, so he's like divine, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Divine he, comes he, from him? Yes. Oh, fuck off. If you would have told me that's who this guy was, I would not have signed up for this. This no, is so no, rude. It's, no, it's crazy because... Like, so rude. Like I told you, first off, Augustus comes along and it's like, hey, I'm the first among equals. And that saves time because then you're not, you're not chest thumping with each other. You've already established, okay, we're all the same. He's the first. Diocletian is like... I control all these places that have no idea even what the emperor looks like sometimes. So he's the first guy to put, like, gold into his robe and all this stuff. He's the first guy who you can't look in the eyes. Oh, gross. And he's the first guy to require bowing. Yeah, but he... And and before this, like, the the emperor had some religious duties, but they weren't weren't titles. And like I said, you would get deified, but you get deified after you died. It would be like, hey, thanks for all your service to Rome. You're a god now. And Diocletian is the first person to be like, um, God said I'm here. And crazy thing is, he's a monotheist, right? So he's, so he's Christian then. No. Yeah, we're going to get... Then who does he believe in? He believes in this thing called Sol Invictus. And monotheism in ancient Rome works differently than kind of how we're taught it by the Christian church. Monotheism allows... Uh, pagan beliefs allows you to have a, a whole pantheon of gods and says all of that power follows a similar hierarchy. Okay. So the most powerful god is Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. Because the sun the sun is just always. Rises every day, even when it's cloudy, eventually it comes back. Nothing stops the sun. And there's some cultural stuff. There was this king that came in and made it popular and said he was god. The Romans were like, Nyet, no, and they killed that guy, like, within, real quickly into his emperorhood, because he was like, I am a god. Diocletian was the first guy to be like, look, I'm not the first among equals, and I'm not a literal god. I'm God's gift to you. Because the, the Sol Invictus, this overwhelming god, either gives his power to people, or 
shows you different incarnations of himself based on his mood. And so that's where Diocletian is getting his power, is he's the son of Jupiter. That's what Diocles means. And he named himself Diocletian to Roman it up because he's very politically savvy. He's like, oh, I've got a... And, and that's part of how he gets away with this, too, is he never goes to Rome for... Or, or he goes to Rome, but he goes to Rome, the city of Rome, very late in his imperium because he, he goes around the country and spreads the myth of Diocletian and, mm. and, and has, a, has things where, like, he'll meet with a few people from town, but everyone else has to wait on the bottom of the hill. Very, very much the same attitude that crime bosses take, right? Where it's like you create this mystique of Don Corleone, right? Like I'm, I'm using Godfather as pop culture reference, but you create the mystique of the big crime boss, right? And and in fact, the Joker was uh, when he was originally written, kind of was supposed to be like this guy who was super sane and was like just figured out if I act weird, people will be even more thrown off. Maybe that's someone else. Anyway, my my point is that it's it's this thing that derives legitimate power, but other future criminal enterprises realizes it works as well, oh, right? Yeah. And later on, in it later on when the kings uh, come along, like the sovereign emperors of France and whatnot, they use this same logic because Diocletian starts it, and because there's so much administrative steps, even meeting him, it creates more of that mystique, right? So of course, like I can't even meet the emperor, and before. Before the that's like the VIP room. Yeah, and before this, the emperors were VIPs, but it was much more like how we would see celebrities in LA, where you're like, oh, I might be able to run into them at the thing. And there's examples of citizens in in Roman history coming up and and saying something to the emperor, and the emperor being like, oh, I can't help you, but have some gold. Hopefully that fixes it. Like like stuff mm, like that. I want that. Just imagine going up to Bernie and he just throws like a stack of hundreds at you. <laughs> that would be so much better. <laughs> I mean, if he just... I mean, maybe not. Maybe if, he not. Just, if I just could hug him. I don't know. <laughs> that would be nice. Diocletian, not a very huggy guy. No. He never fixes the economy, but part of how he figures... He does a lot of stuff to do it. For one thing, they don't understand supply and demand. I barely understand it, but they don't understand that, like, the money that they're... They, they're trying... You gotta have money to spend money. Well, and more importantly, they have, they have a gold standard, and they're trying to exist as if they have a fiat is my understanding. Mm. Like, they're trying to pretend, like, no matter what, this one gold coin is worth one gold coin instead of being worth amount, whatever the amount of gold inside of it is. Oh, okay. So it's actually worth its weight in gold, but they're just pretending like it's one gold on an imperial level, whereas everyone else is like, nope, that's like a third gold. That's like three of those is one gold. Like, that's, that's how much gold is in there, so that's how much it's worth. And it used to kind of work because the emperor could just enforce that as their will. And Diocletian thinks like, oh, I'll be able to come along and and do that as well. Doesn't work out as well. That, like, like it leads to more riots eventually. But he does do an interesting thing to me, which is he uh, creates a barter system inside of the government where he's like, look, you guys, that thing before, like you guys have 30 cattle, send us three to seven and you've paid the equivalent of 500 gold, and mm-hmm. now we don't need to worry about it, and we'll send those cattle to this place, which has some wheat that you guys need, which we'll send to this other place. Oh. And Okay, now it just sounds like we're playing Settlers of Catan. Yeah, the, well, he plays Settlers of Catan until he can kind of stabilize the economy enough that money eventually kind of levels out. But then he goes and messes it up by introducing more currency, like of God different kinds. damn it! 
Because <laughs> all of these guys, the, the thing about money is it's not just money, it's also propaganda. If your face is on, your face is on the money, all right? And so people right. know it's your empire. And so every time there's a new emperor, they're doing this also. Like, especially if they really stick. And Diocletian is the first guy to stick around more than, like, four or five years. So once he gets into, like, a decade, people are like, oh, we are going back to the way things were. Like, make Rome great! <laughs> make he definitely Rome. is giving me some Elon Musk vibes, to be uh, honest. I see. No, I can see that a little bit. Other than, like, the slave dad. Because Elon's dad is, like, a, owns an emerald mine. Right. Well, okay, they just happened upon that emerald mine, okay? That wasn't in the family till pretty recently. How dare you judge them for their new purchases? <laughs> it's hard in these economies. Their new purchase from their other inherited wealth. How dare I? Yeah, come on. You know, it's hard for rich people to just give them a break. Speaking of rich people who had a hard time, ancient Rome. Uh, <laughs> one of the other things Diocletian did was he doubled the army, both the amount of spending on it and what it did and where it was. In a, in a, I might be hyperbolizing that, but very much during this whole fifty years known as the third century crisis, they don't have any forced recruitment, right? Like you're you come into the army because it seems like it's going to be a profitable venture. Like guys show up and they're like, "Hey, do you want to join the army?" Guess what? We run Rome, nobody's in charge, right? But with Diocletian, it's the first time they do that uh, conscription, where they're like, you're in the army now, thanks, you're a soldier. Diocletian secures the border by doing that, but specifically by setting up forts at the edge of the border that are consistently manned with soldiers, and also have a population of farmers who have some militia training. Maybe they're not like expert swordsmen, but they're they, like the reserves. Yeah, they all know how to stand in line with a shield and stab. They don't mm. know how to ride horses. And that's the other thing, is he takes his fighter pilots, he takes his cavalry, and puts them on randomized patrols between these bases. He basically invents the castle system, because fixed location, able to stand up to a siege that can take care of itself autonomously, and has, like, armed forces. And so when several centuries down the line, lines of communication break down between all of these little forts, they end up becoming cities. So he, he lays the groundwork for what becomes the Middle Ages. And in fact, a lot of historians, when they, like, um, when you talk about the early Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, he's kind of considered the start of that in a weird way because of all this groundwork that he did. Interesting. Yeah. And all, and that barter system kind of holds out in the future as far as kings go, because then it's like, well, your your peasantry owes whatever you guys specialize way more than just gold. Mm -hmm. And with the tetrarchy, it also creates that that system of that hierarchy goes on down throughout the army. So below the Caesars, the generals get reorganized, and below the generals, the Centuria, I don't know army ranks. Whatever. Yeah, but it gets all reorganized and it becomes a more enticing package to to a certain... This sounds like a pyramid scheme. But but it it is. But that's kind of what government is. Oh, I know. Shh. I'm not Ooh. trying to draw that parallel. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> Diocletian's... Uh, let's... The, oh, my favorite part about the economy... I'll, uh, one more thing. He does one of my favorite things that doesn't work is he tries to set the uh, the cost edicts. So he tries to say throughout all of the kingdom, these will be the prices for shoes. These will be the prices... <laughs> and it's a weird historic novelty because even though nobody really respects it, it gives us an idea of like what money was worth and where it was and like how communication was handled and stuff because this edict goes throughout the empire that's supposed to be the same. And if it's differed, it's differed for 
cultural individual reasons. So it's an interesting historical phenomenon, even though it just fizzles, even though it's like a mask mandate, <laughs> like it, it still has an impact historically because it shows how we respond to it and, and whether we respect it or not. So places near and dear to the empire are going to respect it. Places far away where they're not, they're going to have a thriving black market. Like it's a, so it's, it's funny in that way, but it's also funny because it's just dude being like, no, shoes are always one gold. Screw it. I'm tired of three gold shoes. Was he doing any sort of research or was I think this so. like what rich people think things I think it, I think it was a little of both. Okay. Di- Diocletian, Diocletian really likes order and he likes things to be effective. So I don't think he would have been insane with it. I wouldn't be surprised if he's like, no, I think... <laughs> Yeah, I want, like, would there be anything that would be pretty biased? Yeah. Free toilet paper for everybody. I poop <laughs> a lot. So I already explained how Rome relied on the benevolent charity of millionaires, and I explained, like, how he's the first guy to be like, God gave me my power. In Diocletian's time, the wealthy are giving less and less to the temples and hoarding more and more of themselves. And, like, this was a thing in Pax Romana, in the in the... Uh, Republican era. Part of how some people made money was they just went to a rich dude and asked for it. So like a lot of your day was just sitting around patiently waiting for a rich dude to give you money which you then took home to your wife who like paid for your slaves and made dinner and shit. Right? Oh that's so wild. So that stops with the third century crisis that goes away. These people start hoarding money. Occasionally they still have patrons where they'll pay you to make a sculpture or whatever but it's becoming less and less frequent. So he starts setting up more of these charity works, but he also starts kind of making some of the religious office positions more governmentally funded. And that's also part of how he manages to kind of infect people, so to speak, with this idea that the, the king comes from God. Is well, the government's also helping institute the religious activities of charity and, and benevolence of taking care of homeless people, right? Mm. So all that is to say he's... It's going about in this um, uh, multi-theistic way, I can't remember, pantheistic way, where there's all these different gods, and each region is doing its own thing. And in the midst of this, Christianity is coming, or is occurring, really. And an- another thing that uh, Diocletian is famous for is the greatest of the Christian purges. Really? Yes, despite being a monotheist. So, here's how that happened. Uh, the first Roman, the, the first really big Roman purge of the Christians in Europe. Uh, the city of Rome, like three fifths of it, catches on fire, and he's like, "The Christians did it! Kill the Christians!" And apparently, mm. apparently, he's been Shapiro in this bit, but he uh, so he orders a bunch of them killed so people don't uh, pay attention to the fact that he did nothing. He didn't play the fiddles; fiddles weren't around. He fiddled around. He did nothing. He just kind of twiddled his thumbs while shit happened to places he didn't care about. And then when stuff what a happened, monster. when his, when his stuff got affected, he cared. And that's why people say he fiddled around. Mm. So he's one of the first people. And the deal is, everyone... Romans are really religious, but they're religious to whichever gods they believe, right? And it's... Atheists are, are considered abnormal, weird people. To ignore and deny the fact that the gods, that tradition states exist and that you can see exist. I gave a blessing to the god and I have harvest. Duh! Right? right. Like, you can't question that. We do that every year and it keeps happening. What are you talking about? There's no gods. Even less the idea of one god. Jews are allowed a certain leeway because even though they're conquered, Judaism is a very old religion. It's older than Christi- or older than Rome. And so yeah. they have some respect for it. And again, it's a god. And the Romans are like, look, it, 
we don't think it's the god, but it's a god. So we're gonna we're gonna play as nice and hands off as we can. They do eventually end up destroying the temple of Jerusalem like twice and creating the the Jewish diaspora uh, before Diocletian. But the issue is they still respect Judaism because there's a god. Romans don't like Christians because not only are they not into any gods. Right? They talk about this dude, and he's a god, and there's this weird thing. They're also, for the most part, as far as um, the general empire of Rome is concerned, they're a subsect. Christians are Jews with extra steps. And also, Christians are preaching all kinds of weird shit that doesn't make sense to Romans. Right, like They're preaching charity. And Romans think you fight, live, die. Like You have to fight, live, and die to earn your way through life. Like, you have to do this. But that's interesting because you were talking about earlier about how, like, you donate to... Uh, but you donate to the God because the God gave you that blessing. You don't you do that. something nice just to do something nice. Yeah, you do something okay. nice because it happened. And the gods might take it away if you don't give them enough or if you give them too little. So you've got to keep them on your side. They're your friends. They're, they're, they're your allies. They're they're also extorting you. So, it, like, uh-huh. it just it just doesn't look that way because they're giving you such a nice thing. They're making you protected and your hearth is safe or whatever. And Christians are weird because they don't go to temples, right? They don't go to the religious festivals. They just can't keep to themselves. And they're also weird. It's nice to know that Christians have been a buzzkill for this long. Yeah, and the, the other thing is Rome isn't a fan of the Jews already because they've always, they've been a contentious conquered people. Like, like, they've had uprisings and whatnot. They they have historically done a good job of being like, we're not actually conquered, guys. Like, <laughs> But during this point, the Romans think of Christians as a subject of Judaism, uh, and, and the Christians are anti-state. Basically, that, that thing where Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, what can loosely be translated is he's saying, yeah, pay your taxes and whatever, but, like, yo, that, that's it, man. Like, don't don't antagonize them but the state's gonna be there and that's that's another that's a weird and interesting thing to me about christianity is it's predicated kind of on the notion that an empire is always going to be around to take care of the 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 greater if that makes sense so like they have this weird anti-state stand in the beginning but it's based on the notion that there's always going to be a state so you can be a part of it by being a christian and and they're also fractish. They're, 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 they operate as these individual little cells. Each church in every city is its own version of Christianity. So the, mm. to use our local area, the Gresham Christians and the Park Rose Christians and the Maywood Park Christians are all going to be slightly different versions of Christianity. And if we try to squash one, they're going to run away to five other points and recruit four other people. So it doesn't... Like, let's just let them be... Right? They don't matter, except for the part where they're pacifists. They won't go into war. They won't engage in like trying to conquer people. They'll defend themselves. They're not, they're not anti-violent. Like, there's Christian riots and Christians fight each other. But at this point, they're pacifists in that they refuse to engage in war, really mm. specifically, and in the idea of conquering other people. They're very much live and let live I hate drawing this parallel because it's not the same, but they're not that different than Antifa anarchists and that they're like, we don't want an authoritative state. We want to start small communities that take care of each other. At this point, 
the idea of heaven is not so much a reward as you make heaven on earth and then it will also be there in the end. Heaven isn't a guarantee. You have to work towards heaven. And like, this is much more of a Constantine thing several centuries later. But a common practice is you wait until as late as possible to get baptized so that because you all know all that stuff gets washed away because you know you're going to make mistakes along the way and and all of the ideas in well, the interim are ways you can earn yourself into heaven the christian concept of forgiveness is so baffling but in this time period it's much less so but the the main thing is that religion is a state affair to a certain degree it's not it's not state instituted but if you're not following a religion then you're against the state because the state supports the religion well it's kind of like how in america if you're not christian it's somehow a threat exactly and diocletian starts the purges because of this there's a lot of apocryphal stories but the basic account is i'm trying to think of the best way to give the historically accurate version of this because i i heard multiple versions of how it started so instead i'll give you the overview which is a lot of christians wouldn't attend public events and because they have difference towards gods they also have deference towards the idea of somebody appointed by a god mm. so when you say hey god sent me here i'm leading this ritual i'm gonna say hey i'm out you're saying i don't acknowledge the emperor's power you're fucking with this pride and so christians what, and so there's a number of them that he has killed on sight like just like oh, oh you didn't do what i said stab dead but some of that's apocryphal and this happens with a lot of history. It's written by people after the fact or people in the middle of. And both those people have agendas. So people in the middle of Diocletian's reign are either trying to earn his favor or not get in trouble. So when they talk about it, they might say that, oh, he's really lenient and he was really kind. And then after the fact, people, Christians are in charge of things. And he killed a bunch of Christians so they can be like, fuck that guy. Like, no matter what. And so it's hard to tell with accuracy. But what it sounds like is people were told, all right, make a sacrifice to the gods. Not going to do that? Cool, we'll talk to you later. And then everybody who doesn't is put on a list. And then we come and confiscate your property or we you lose some rights. Okay, are you willing to make a sacrifice to the gods now? And it actually creates like one of the first big schisms in the church because part of the doctrine is is pacifism so all right cool i'll make a sacrifice to zeus and then i'm gonna go home and say sorry to jesus right like because that's that's the other thing about uh christianity is you you can have it on your own you can go home and pray and it will go straight to god i don't need to talk to god's representation on earth to get the message up to him there's not a cue which is what a lot of these other religions have so there's wait was that a QAnon reference not intentionally, but that was a good that was a good catch. <laughs> Sorry, I just got pumped out the about QAnon. Um, it, it that's something important to note though is that it, within certain Christian faiths you can't talk directly to God or at least certain things. And part of that breakdown comes probably yeah. And and the, that big purge is because some people do that, and then some people really take stock in the people who didn't. Because there there are thousands of people who die. Churches get destroyed. Like whole whole, whole it, it's it's a it's a massacre, right? It's a religious genocide. Yes, but at the same time, there's a lot of people who are like, uh, I'm not going to get genocided. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Zeus, Jesus. Like, yeah. Well, and also what I hate about this is that. This is the beginning of ca of Christians trying to act like they're persecuted now. Yes. Or at least, like, 
they're gonna use this past forever to be like, we've been persecuted too, you know. Yeah, and it starts it starts with Diocletian, and he does the biggest version of it. Like I said, before, everyone does it as a sort of reactionary, like, oh, I, I, I don't want you to notice the fact that I let the city, three-fifths of the city burn. Christians did it, right? Right. And everyone's fine with that, because again, like... Christian Christianity is a subsect of Judaism, which is a subsect of a whole portion of the empire. So it's like it's like saying not quite an exact parallel, but it's like Scientology a little bit, where you're like, it's not really my problem. It's a handful of people doing some weird whatever. It's all the way in L.A. I don't care. And then you find out there's dialectic temples everywhere, or whatever they call them. Like, I don't even know. Yeah, but they have the, the their offices. Where's Leia Remini when you need her? Yeah. But but it's very much like that where it's it's not a big mainstream thing and it gets kind of popularized too because if you were on the fence about the Christians, the fact that the Empire is willing to mess with them, if you don't like the Empire already, if you're already like, cool, it exists, and then you hear about this religion that like is being persecuted, you're going to be more interested in it. And then you hear about how it's like anti-state and it's all these other things. And so it does a good it does a good job of crushing it for the minute, and that's really kind of the the theme of Diocletian's reign. It does a really good job of doing things while Diocletian is in charge, mm. and that's what Diocletian is really good at. So he does manage to like reset the economy, but only while he's in charge, and he does manage to reset the succession problem. Like after, and it is set up after him, so that power flows from the top down and gets kind of decided that way. Constantine. Uh, takes it an extra step level when he institutes Christianity kind of across the whole empire and creates this whole thing. Remember how I was saying, like, empires lasting a thousand years are a pretty big deal. What we call the New Byzantine Empire lasts until 1400s, like the middle of the 1400s, and gets its start with Diocletian in 290, right? So it's it lasts a thousand years. It changes over time, and it expands into all of these little fiefdoms and whatnot, and feudalism evolves from it. And all of that evolves from this dude being like, the boss is God's gift to you. Ah, what a bastard. But it gets crazier because he he resets the army, he does all this stuff, but he did it in a way that only works while he's in charge. And he makes, like, besides the great Christian persecution where it kills a lot of people and it disrupts society, and a lot of that is also a naked grab at money because he... He takes back church property uh, and makes it state property and makes it a new temple or whatever. And so, again, that creates a little bit of aggression towards the state. But at the time, it all works because it's 20 years of this. It's it's His reign is from 284 to 305. And that's a long time, especially when before that, 50 years of a new dude maybe lasting... Six, seven years is a long time before this. And then you get... 25-ish years? 20... 26. Yeah. So, like... Or no, 21. 21-ish years of just one dude. And leading up to him, Aurelian sets a lot of this stuff into place. He he set up those... There's there's also a little bit of confusion about Diocletian because uh, Valerian and Aurelian had set up a lot of stuff and Diocletian had just kind of put his stamp on it. It's very much the problem we have with presidents. We're like... We don't really know the economic impact of one president until the next president, but then we blame that on the current president. And I mean, all of that's muddied more by the fact that it's not just the president making financial decisions. Diocletian gets that similar benefit. Oh, yeah. 
because Aurelian set a bunch of stuff in place, and Diocletian's like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should fortify the city walls. We should do that to all the cities. And, and Aurelian makes the cavalry units stronger and, and tries to boost their numbers and their payment and all that stuff. And our Diocletian doubles down on that as well. So there's a lot of stuff where it's like, it was him, but maybe it wasn't him. But the most important thing is he's tr he tries to get it back to the Golden Age, and for a solid 20-plus years he succeeds, and even for a little while after he retires. But he makes a few really obvious mistakes when he retires. One is he insists his general in the... Basically, the, the system is he and this guy Maximinius are co-emperors, and underneath them are these guys Constantius, who is Constantine's dad, and Galerius are the Caesars. And he's kind of pitched that, like, we're going to quit, and then you guys will be Augustus, and you'll pick your Caesar from among your generals, right? But what he doesn't count on is, uh, one, those guys don't pick their kids, right? They pick men within their ranks instead of their sons, which pisses off their sons, because they think they're going to inherit the title of Caesars. Oh, shit. Yeah. And this is a common uh, adoption and intermarriage is a common practice. How the Tetrarchy worked was, like, Diocletian married his daughter to Valerius, who married his son to somebody who, like that first, basically the same setup that led to World War One, gets established way back in Rome, where all these people are like, yeah, we're married into each other and we'll be nice for now, right? But we'll also build up these personal resentments that will allow us to fuel armies and nations that fight each other. That's so weird. So when he retires, he forces Maximinius to retire. And Maximinius isn't politically savvy. He's very much a brute force kind of guy. And but he, he didn't want to retire, I'm assuming. He, he, like, he was fine with it, because Diocletian was such a force of personality, but he wasn't happy about it. Oh, uh, okay. Right, and then in addition to that, these two dudes, the, the two dudes beneath them, elevate other dudes when their sons want the role. And their sons pull some shenanigans. Basically, uh, it's a big mess after he quits. Uh, they elevate those guys. They make not their kids Caesars. Their son revolts. Maximinius comes back to try to fix things, and he's killed because everyone... Because he comes back and he's like, I'm the big boss! I'm in charge of everybody! And tells everybody to fall in line with him. And they're like, no! Like, he has no political savvy, so he doesn't even try to say, like... He doesn't even make, give them the idea that it's their idea. Yeah, and so he ends up getting killed, um, and they try to get Diocletian back a few years later. And they, they, it's, it's all a mess by this point. So, like, Constantius is, is dead. Constantine, Constantine, ugh, Roman names. <laughs> but Constantine uh, rises in rank. Galerius ends up dying and someone else takes his position. Maximinius's son, Maximinian, if I remember right, takes over the city of Rome. And there's all of this fighting still. So it's, it's weird because he does put a stop to, Diocletian puts a stop to the fighting until he abjugates. But he's the first guy to retire. And part of why he retires is he's old and he thinks, like, he's seen Empire as a job. And he thinks, I'll go get my retirement package. It's very much like crime bosses being, like... I, I, I just see him being, at this point, played by, like, um, Marlon Brando and instead of Tomato Patches. Because all these people come to him. And there's this famous scene in Roman history where he's sitting among his cabbages. And they're, like, like he's putting... It's plans in place, and they're like, hey man, can you come back and be emperor? And he's like, I put the cabbages in order, and they stay in order. 
I'm not I'm not messing with the chaos of the empire. Because every time I put it in order, somebody's like, no, I want to be in charge. Mm-hmm. Like, you basically know my cabbages. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he ends up dying before the end of the Civil War that leads to Constantine coming into power. And there's a good chance that he committed suicide. Nobody nobody really? kills him. Yeah. He dies off screen, so to speak, historically mm-hmm. speaking. But it's crazy because he, he's so powerful that when he uh, when they come to him, everyone is like, if he comes to him, we'll all fall back in line. Like, he's such a magmatic force of personality, um, and he has such okay. a reputation that, like, everyone kind of does want him to come back. And he's like, nah, because you guys are just going to knock it all back out of order when, I've, when I'm done with it. And so, like, the reason, the reason I wanted to talk about him is, is kind of threefold. One, he created all of these things that still exist today. If you think about that, that relationship you have at work with your boss, I know every job I've gone to, we're supposed to think the boss knows what they're doing. Usually they don't. Yeah. But we're also supposed to think that the boss above them, if that's the case, must really know what they're doing. And the guy running the, the, the company, I mean, not the empire, the company, must... Same difference. Exactly. It's kind of what I'm going for. Diocletian set that into place. Maybe it was already going on a little bit, but he was the first guy to say no. And, and in other empires, it was going on where people were saying, I am the king. But he was the first guy to look at this system of that Rome had in place and realize the problem is I'm not a strong authoritarian. There's not a strong authoritative person coming forth and saying right from wrong, do as I say. And the reason I think that's important is... Like I said, the Founding Fathers were big fanboys of the Roman Republic. They didn't really care about how the Empire came into place, and they didn't really care about after the Empire, and they didn't really care about after, after, after the Empire. They thought they were like, oh, we're a colony that's turned into a republic that's conquering the native land mass by Ooh. having tribes fight each other and owning slaves to build everything. Oh, look, we're doing that. And so they cribbed a lot of the notes, but they didn't consider where that goes. And where that goes is some form of anarchy. Uh, one of the books I used for this was A Storm Before the Storm uh, by this guy Mike Duncan. And he quotes someone else in his introduction to the book about how historically power goes from monarchy to oligarchy to democracy, back to oligarchy, back to monarchy. In the purest Greco sense of the word. Monarchy meaning singular rule oligarchy meaning a few people ruling, democracy meaning many people, ruled by the people. Mm-hmm. All right, and his, his, his notion of it is the Roman kings lead to the Roman Republic, lead to the plebeians wanting more rights, which is what leads to them anointing the senators, which end up backbiting and feeding themselves until we get to, in his case, Sola, but eventually Caesar, and eventually... Augustus and eventually Diocletian. Yeah. My kind of argument or maybe point I could make in the middle of there is actually there is a state of anarchy. There is a state of no leader in there that kind of maybe exists in that democracy place as well. And I know there's there's like philosophers who say uh, uh, democ- anarchy in action looks like democracy. So I guess kind of my caveat is if we want to avoid like military anarchy, Maybe we should look into citizenry anarchy. Right. I mean, a lot of it comes down to, like, meeting the needs of the community 
on a much more direct level than relying on governmental or non-governmental structures that are really big and far removed. And that's, that's the second lesson that I take from Diocletian, which is he figured out that, like, the empire doesn't need a guy to be in power. It needs a manager. It needs somebody to be in charge. Part of abjugating power is you recognizing, part of him making Maximinius his second emperor, part of him making the Caesars underneath them, is saying the empire isn't too big to fail. It has to be broken down. It has to have, the machine will run. And your job isn't to run the machine, isn't to, to rule the machine. It's to run the machine if you, if you do take a position of power. And he's one of really the only people, I think, historically to figure that out. I have an opinion about history, which is that all systems work until people get involved. <laughs> like, like, fascism isn't the worst idea until you realize there's a human consequence to all that. Mm-hmm. Right? But the idea that one guy making all the choices, that's kind of simple. Like, that wouldn't be bad if that was a good, perfect, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with theocracy. If your religion is reason until people get involved and start having their own motivation the idea that like we'll live a heavenly life here not a bad idea diocletian kind of exemplifies that ideal to me because he proves that like the roman empire worked even without an emperor for over 50 years with nobody being in charge people figured out how to trade how to commerce Mm -hmm. diocletian figured out how to be its manager and then i guess kind of my final point which is like this thing that really comes to me every time I think about history. People in the past weren't stupid. They just had less, and they had to do more with it oftentimes. Yeah. So Rome doesn't bow to an authoritarian because this dude has ultimate power and he ruled the army. They let him do it because their history and their context told him that's who should be in charge. I think oftentimes we beat ourselves up uh, as the trash people of America in particular because we don't have enough history at our disposal and we don't have enough context, right? I think about Diocletian being around in 305, dying in like 308 or whatever he dies in. I can't remember. I wrote down somewhere. And that is nearly 2,000 years ago. But all of those systems that he set in place are still here now in a very real way. A lot of the trends he set, people messed with it, and it wasn't exclusive to him. Like I said, stuff was being in place. So he's very much like the the guy who might have just been emblematic of it all. The reason he sticks with me and he's so important is because, like, he was one of those people who saw really the depth of history. He saw what Augustus did. Like, he was learned enough to be like, oh, I see how the emperors did it in the past and actually did it right. And he came from being a slave. So it wasn't like he he came from the top to the bottom, or whatever, from the bottom to the top, baby. (laughs) But, like, we talked earlier about how annoyed I am with political philosophy and how one of the big problems is that uh, uh, it starts with Plato, and Plato's like, everybody should be a philosopher or a king. And I think I've sort of low-key made the argument that kings are just mob bosses, are are just... kind of contentious, extortionist, violent criminals. So really what old Plato was saying was be a really cunning criminal and then think about your own asshole all the time. <laughs> and I think that's bad political philosophy, but the message that we hear nowadays 
of, of every king should be a philosopher and every philosopher should be a king should be inverted in that like every citizen should do some amount of educating themselves. And the more you educate yourself, the more of a better citizen and person you'll be able to be. Yeah. And that's the whole goal with this program. What do you think? This is this is my presentation on Diocletian. I hated it. No, um... Oh, before I forget, before I forget, credits, sources include extra credits. They have a really great uh, multi-series video about Diocletian. Uh, and they're a very accessible series of videos on YouTube. The History of Rome podcast covers all of the history of Rome. Uh, but I use the episodes about Diocletian in particular. But And they're also very accessible. So if you're a younger viewer, hi, Pearl. Uh, go ahead and check that out. Um, I, I listened to a whole book called The Ten Caesars. I forgot to write down the author, but um, it covers emperors from Augustus to Constantine. And Diocletian is the second to last chapter in it, but it gives a really good idea of how all this history works. And it's, again, very accessible. That's one of my main goals when I give you extra credit homework to look into. And Yale Courses, the Early Middle Ages, the first two videos of that cover Diocletian very intensely and explain a lot of how these changes come about from the from Rome becoming Catholicism, transforming into kind of the feudal system. Okay. All right, sorry. Wanted to get those out of the way before I forgot. No, that's fine. Uh, you have questions, you have thoughts. Well, there was something you were talking about where, like, you want to decentralize, or, like, you want to centralize power and put to kind of remove the power from the people. And it kind of made me think of the Bible story of Babel, of, like, someone wanted to build a tower to get to God, and what did God do? Make it so we couldn't communicate with each other. Oh, and, the, and also when you were talking about, like, how all these systems work, but then you add people. And it's not because people are inherently bad, but it's because we have some of the most ineffective ways of communicating. Yeah. Because, like, we can't even read our own thoughts a lot of the time, let alone understand other people's. So it's like any system is bound to fail if it's reliant only on clear communication without any sort of, like, verification that information is passing properly and really... Addressing the situation. A thing I forgot to cover, and I meant to, but but I'll, it'll be more clear throughout more of these historical shows, is the Romans thought they were the end of history. They thought they thought everything it will be Rome forever, and when there's like the third century crisis, it will revert back to Pax Romana. This is just a bump in the road of Rome eternal. Interesting. Right, and that's not really that differently than how we view America. Or how Britain viewed itself. Right. Or if you look at a lot of modern Chinese propaganda, how they discuss the Republic of China. Like it's, or not the Republic, I can't remember what it's called now. But uh, who knows? My point is that every time people assume they're the end of history, they end up living through really interesting times in history. Oh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And that's what makes Diocletian, I think, particularly interesting, is I think he was kind of aware of that. He's the most proof that, like, history doesn't end. It just keeps going. Because <laughs> he's like, yep, I set everything up. Rome is, I, I reset Rome. Back to zero. Zero days since no Roman Empire. Ah, you guys, you dropped Rome everywhere. Like... <laughs> no, I mean, he, sound, he sounds like he was a pretty darn fascinating dude. Um, one thing that I find really interesting is just how much of, like, my understanding of Christianity 
came into play while we were talking about this because it's really interesting to see his influence on the Catholic faith because I think he definitely had a lot. Yes, the, like, the, the system he sets up, the Catholic, like the, the Roman Empire follows like Ro- for a while. Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah, and then when Rome takes so when, when Rome, Rome eventually breaks up into the Eastern and the Roman Empire, or the Eastern and the Western Empire, the Western Empire becomes all kind of the feudal states we know about. And this other area, New Byzantine, as we call it now, is a continuation of Rome. It's like a Rome spinoff. Where, and that system stays in place until like 1430-something. And, and that's where we get that term Byzantine from, because this elaborate administrative system he set up kept people kind of subjugated. Because you, you don't have to hand them handcuffs if they have to wait in line. Um, so, this is the part where we shout out patrons. The very special thank to Claire Daphne and Pearl. She, she was a young listener and really enjoyed everything we did with Cost of Convenience. I hope she enjoys uh, uh, Diocletian. Uh, also, Chelsea Taylor, Butterface Creations. Butterface Creations, in particular, helped us with the logo for Cost of Creations. Oh, shit. And he takes commissions as well. Thank you to Carrie Davis, Erica N., Ash Alexander, and Chella L. So, if you guys want to be a patron, go to Patreon forward slash Recyclables. It's all right there. Uh, membership is as low as $3. I figure at my brokest, I could afford $3 a month, so... Um, Give us money. <laughs> money, please. Or subscribe to Rochelle's art. Pour for poor. Or our no, it's pour for poor. I do poor paintings. They look okay. Um, and I'm still in the process of getting more episodes out of my podcast, which is a talking shit and spilling pee. Bye, folks. Thanks Bye. for coming. Woo! All right. I got it all. Thank you for picking up Recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are, of course, always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to patreon.com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today. If you can't do that, another great way is by liking, subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use. All right, thanks.